Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 308. We are cruising into Nebraska, uh, moving along on our area code podcasts. Joining me for the ride today is Tim Maluli and Brendan Maluli. How's it going? Got a lot of good things to talk about, right? Yeah, why don't we uh, start off by talking about what's going on with interest rates and the bond market. Uh, there's a plenty to talk about with this. Yeah, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the headline was, Behind bond market stall, investors see hard times ahead. And uh, it was talking about the yield on U.S. government bonds, I think specifically the 10-year, and how it's kind of stalled out near all-time lows. And the, the author of the article was saying how that's a sign. Investors and people in the U.S. anticipate a painful economic recovery over the next couple of years. And Bren, what are your thoughts on that? I'm not sure I totally agree because uh, I think they're assuming that that we're like the marketplace is setting the, the interest rates where it is when that's not necessarily the case. Uh, it's It's been dragged down by what the Federal Reserve is, is doing with interest rates. Um, and, and their intention of doing it is actually the exact opposite of, of what they're talking about. So instead of rates being low because people expect bad economic growth over the next 10 years. I, I think it's more that the Fed is trying to make economic growth good over the next 10 years. I agree. There's, uh, in a weird way, there's infinite demand for these treasury securities because not only is the Fed in the market, the Federal Reserve in the market every day looking to buy treasury bills, notes, and bonds from banks, there's also plenty of places around the globe that just want to have the safety and a positive yield. You know, the yield on a 10-year treasury as we're recording this is 0.68% for 10 years. So when you think about that, like what's a one year going to be like? What's a CD at a bank going to be? I mean, these rates are going to be near zero, but it's that demand that the Federal Reserve has created that I think has helped keeping yields where they are. Right, you see that too with uh, a lot of companies offering out, you know, debt too at, at low interest rates. So what the Fed's action has done is it encourages companies to offer bonds, which means they're receiving loans from people who are buying their bonds to to get cash today and do stuff uh, in their businesses. And right now that might mean just keeping the lights on and keeping the empo- employees paid, but. I mean, or or retiring older debt yeah. with higher rates, right? Meaning yeah. their cash flow improves, and maybe they can do other other stuff with right. the money. But I mean, they're they're issuing debt, and these are you know they mentioned a couple of really big companies. You can buy like ten year Costco debt for you know you get an extra percent over the ten year Treasury uh, note these days, but it's it's still super cheap. I don't think that means that things are are looking bad for the economy moving forward. I just I just think it means that like there's some interesting engineering going on behind the scenes. I also think it it might be a misinterpretation or a a bad expectation setting in terms of what good economic growth is over the next 10 years. Because, I mean, you look back at the last 10 years, rates have still been historically pretty low. And 
the economy wasn't, I guess, meeting the expectations of four or five percent GDP growth, but I wouldn't say the economy was in bad shape for the last ten years. I mean, I mean everything was doing just fine. Two thousand ten. I mean, it yeah, was, exactly. It wasn't the uh, the the hottest or or fastest uh, highest growth GDP positive uh, stretch in 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 history, but it, it was one of the longest economic expansions in history, and it's only been interrupted now by freak of nature event. It, it wasn't necessarily even that like things in the economy had overheated or gone wrong. It's it's kind of just like a natural disaster. I think people get like kind of held up on the on the nominal numbers for mm-hmm. GDP, and they don't really think about what it means in real terms. Yeah, I, I think that there's some folks that may, might be at the Fed, and certainly. Fed watchers who say, you know, all this quantitative easing that they did in 2009, 10, 11, and and going forward, they were still hoping for, with each blast, that there was going to be that 4% annualized GDP number, whether it was just for a quarter or two or for an entire year, and they never got it. I think the interesting thing, and maybe you were getting to this point, is if we were hoping for 4% GDP growth, were we hoping for 4% GDP growth with zero inflation? Or were we hoping for 4% GDP growth with 2% inflation, meaning nominal GDP of 2%, which is because we got that. That's exactly what we got. But we got 2% GDP growth with no inflation instead. And so the headline number sounds like it's you know, Lackluster. slow economic right. growth, kind of a malaise. And, and I'm not sure that was the case. I mean, it actually worked out pretty much the way it should have in the sense that remember, one of the Fed targets during QE, when they were talking about we're not going to raise rates until we get inflation at 2%. And it just never got there. Right. And so their goal for inflation was 2% year over year. We've had these periods now where we've had low growth and little to no inflation. And I was told back in the early 80s when I got into this business that if we ever went into a period where we had steady low growth and no inflation, that's going to be nirvana. That's going to be heaven for stock prices. And that's exactly what we got. Yeah. But everybody was was scared as hell on the way up. It was nirvana for the stock prices, but everyone was complaining about it the whole time. I I think uh, like another piggyback topic off of this is just kind of with rates being so low, you kind of get into conversations uh, and they pertain to both bonds and stocks. So when, when the market goes on a good run, people will say, well, the market's so high, like it can only go down from here, right? And so people kind of have the same expectation of bonds and it's you know like rate rates are so low they've got nowhere to go but up with the 10-year at you know 0.7 percent i've been hearing that for eight years now since since i started at the company here yeah and i know that at some point there there's a limit to this and i i don't know where it is but for people who in 2012 were beating the drum of don't put your money in bonds Rates have nowhere to go but up, meaning if rates are going up, you're going to lose money in principal on your bonds. That was a really bad bet. <laughs> yeah. Because if you put money into like here, here, you know, at our, at our company, we use short and intermediate term high quality, you know, treasuries and corporate, you know, uh, investment grade debt to invest for clients. But like the, the ones that are most sensitive to interest rates are the long term bonds. So in 2012, if you put money into the 30 year uh, T bonds and looked at performance now, 
I mean, I'd venture to say you made pretty good money. You might have made almost as good of money as you might have made in stocks over that time period. I was just about to interrupt you and say that I think if you had bought 30 years zeros, yeah, right. you probably yeah. would have done, yeah. you, you would have had stock-like returns. Easy in hindsight, and also along with the stock-like returns is near stock-like volatility, oh, which, yeah. which is why we don't yeah. necessarily use uh, long-term bonds in our portfolios here because we use them to tamp down volatility. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you don't totally get that with those. But just just point being that if you've got feelings about the direction uh, of interest rates and you think it can only go in one direction, I would caution you against that because very smart people in 2012 were beating that drum and they've been really wrong for eight years now. And it's yeah. not it's not because they don't know what they're talking about. It's yeah. just because predicting the, the path that interest rates are going to go on is is futile and you don't need to do it. They yeah. could eventually end up being right, but being wrong for eight years is a really long time to be wrong. It's like eventually it, it could be, happen, but like you'll do be you out want, of business. I don't think right. you I don't think you get to take credit if your prediction yeah. takes that long to be if you're, true. If you yeah, if it takes that long, you you were wrong. You're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's okay. You yeah. were wrong. Yeah. It's all right. Don't stay wrong. So yeah. this also propels the discussion when. The Fed is buying bonds in the open market like this, and they're keeping rates low. The discussion of uh, the TINA market, there is no alternative. And so it pushes people into riskier investments. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the option these days. I mean, you can't, you can't just retire and stick your money into treasuries and get four or five percent on it and live off the interest. I'm not sure that world ever existed anyway, as, as an aside, because inflation. Yeah, I mean, you have to come up with an appropriate mix because I think I think what you get with uh, the bond side of your portfolio these days with rates as they are, one of the qualities of bonds that, that you would want is the interest, which is, you know, basically a throwaway at this point in time. But you still want to bake it in there into a portfolio, meaning uh, because it's it's still there to be the ballast. It's still there to provide stability uh, when the stocks are going down, you know, assuming that you're using high quality bonds. And I still think there's a value to it, but maybe the mix of, uh, of a retiree's portfolio needs to meets, it needs to be a little more reflective of, of reality these days, meaning that the, the growth that you're going to need to stay ahead of inflation over time is coming entirely from stocks. So the bond piece is probably going to have negative real returns from where we're starting today. And that's, yeah. that's okay. So when we talk about bonds and the bond market, it naturally kind of spills over into talking about mortgage-backed securities, which the Fed is also buying, and talking about the mortgage market. And there were there was some headlines that came out in the last few days about mortgages. Yeah, so there was an article in Market Watch uh, talking about how mortgage loans uh, backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're making it easier to refinance for people that are in forbearance but are still current on their payments, uh, or they're they're shortening the amount of time that you need to have been current before you can refinance after being in forbearance. Because I think originally it was 12 months. Uh, if you were in forbearance, you needed to be current for 12 months after that before you can refinance. And now they're shifting it to three months to make it a little easier for people. It seems like there, there are more people in this situation uh, with everything going on right now. And uh, interest rates are really low. And, and I think the hope still from everybody is that this is going to be a short-term blip. 
uh, for the economy and something that can help to stimulate the economy is people doing refinances or getting lines of credit from their properties or, or getting new mortgages. And I think they want to do everything they can to not prohibit people who want to do that from doing it. They were talking about just making sure that the, the mortgage industry continues to run efficiently. So yeah. if people want to refinance, they can. And it yeah. didn't run efficiently in 2009, 10, 11. Uh, there was a, a, actually a really good example, believe it or not, in the New York Post, the bastion of business news. Um, <laughs> but uh, they uh, had one of these letters that they from a reader who wrote in and said, hey, I contacted Chase Bank about getting forbearance because I heard that everybody can, you know, with forbearance, you basically hit the pause button, in this case, for three months. This guy had a $2,000 a month mortgage payment, and Chase said, Sure, we'll put you on forbearance for 90 days. That's three months, three payments. But at the end of the forbearance period, you need to get current on your mortgage. So you're going to need to cough up $6,000 in 90 days. And he's like, why in the world would I get into a forbearance program when I have to come up with all of this money, a lump sum, in 90 days? That doesn't help me at all. And so there were discussions about, hey, maybe we should just tack those three months to the end of the mortgage, or maybe they can be a little flexible on this. But I don't think a lot of people understand what forbearance actually means. It's not that you're, you're allowed to just skip a mortgage payment. We're, we're just hitting the pause button here for a while. Eventually, those payments are going to resume. So the problem that Tim alluded to was that a lot of people wanted to refinance in 2009, 10, 11 to get out of some of the overwhelming debt that they had. In addition to you know their homes being upside down, uh, they then found out from mortgage lenders that they couldn't refinance because they were in forbearance. And like you said, Tim, they had to be. They found out the hard way that they had to be not only current, but they had to be 12 months past the end of the forbearance period. And people were like, what the hell? Yeah, these these could have been people who theoretically were down on their luck and then had turned things around and then uh, were looking to further that by maybe refinancing and, and getting you know their mortgage payments uh, to a more feasible level as they continue to you know get get employment back and really get back on the right track. And then they were told, you know, because of this thing that happened a year ago, yeah. you're still in trouble and, and you can't refinance. Right. And that, that would have only helped them to theoretically, it could, have, it could have helped people to continue to recover quicker from, from a bad stretch. And so I think that's, they're trying to make that not happen this time because that, I think that was probably a ripple effect that they did not intend to have coming out of a crisis and maybe it prolonged some of the pain in housing. I mean, absolutely. In my opinion, it absolutely suffered did. until 2012. And, and right. the, the, I mean, the economy was getting better in 10 and 11. Yeah. This was not just a ripple. I mean, it was like a white cap yeah. kind of a ripple. We didn't even hear these stories until 2010, mm. 2011, where people had been They've gone through forbearance. Now they're trying to piece their life back together. And now they're finding out that they're stuck in a 6 or 7% interest rate mortgage because they can't refinance because of this forbearance thing. I think that something that's come out of you know this this whole pandemic situation has just been like these, we're rolling out programs and trying to help people. And I think, in my opinion, we're doing a pretty good job of realizing quickly what what unintended consequences we're creating, and then and then reacting and updating rules or changing rules because ultimately the the programs a lot of these things were just rolled out as quickly as possible to help people, 
And, and then if we're discovering after the fact that there was some kind of unintended consequence that didn't help people as much or, or, or was a negative unintended consequence, we're, we're fixing it, which is, which is, I think what this is. So I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's good for everybody. And we're, I think it's just a sign that we're all, we're trying the best we can. I think there was a, there was a stat in this article on MarketWatch though, that was saying that like 70% of the people who were in forbearance, like ended up not needing it. I get when all of this started, there was so even more uncertainty than there is now. And people didn't really know what was going to happen. So maybe they kind of jumped the gun in terms of raising their hand for, for forbearance. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, think things through a little more and also, you know, if you voluntarily put your mortgage into forbearance and then you want to refinance, it's like, well, if you have the money to refinance your mortgage, you could have just not gone put into your, forbearance, not gone into forbearance in the first place. But it's, yeah. I don't know. that I think they're trying to make it easy. I have some empathy for people. people right? yeah. because people there was a lot going on. Yeah. You know, and, and, so, and so now to like to allow them to do something like that I said before, it's mm-hmm. it's helpful to the economy that people are refinancing. It's good for the mortgage industry yeah. and it keeps them on their feet and maybe keeps the housing market from you know tanking Stalling like like out. some people yeah. uh, have have expected or anticipated you know we'll we'll see what happens there it, it could be helpful that this sort of activity can still occur and that we're not putting up barriers that don't necessarily need to be there for people to do it yeah. I, I will say i think that the whole financial industry has learned a lot and and the government too has learned a lot from the last time that they had to do this in 2008 and 2009 and the speed and the size and the velocity of these programs is it's a huge difference from 2008 and 9 when the mortgage market basically seized up in 2008 you could forget about refinancing you just couldn't get a loan yeah rates rates were super low it didn't, didn't matter any any good right? right and so uh you wound up getting these zombie neighborhoods where people were underwater well underwater uh, on their mortgage and they didn't want to pay because they knew that there was already a list 10 miles long of people who were ahead of them in the foreclosure line. And so there were, unfortunately, for a lot of people, people were living in houses that they were underwater on, they were not making payments, the banks weren't getting money, the mortgages weren't getting paid, bondholders were suffering. I mean, it was a bad situation for everybody. I think a lot of these things, like the re, like the forbearance period being 90 days, you know what, that's actually pretty good. And not having to wait 12 months to be eligible to refinance. That's good. These are things that are really gonna, like you said, Brendan, this is gonna really help keep the market moving. Which is, I mean, and that's what we've seen in the stock market too. Yeah. With with the Fed, you know, stepping in to, to buy uh, not only treasuries, but but corporates too, and, and some municipal bonds. I mean, it's 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 not just for fun. It's, it's to help make these markets liquid, which is what we're talking about with the real estate market too. Like they want, transactions to occur they want business to be happening uh because it's ultimately in everybody's best interest so it's thursday morning we're recording this and thursday mornings the last few weeks has meant initial jobless claims let's spend a minute or two just kind of talking through what these numbers mean yeah there was an article outlined in in the wall street journal that talked about kind of making sense of jobless and unemployment numbers you know taking a look at are these jobless claims the same thing as you know layoffs and in a sense they are but we've also seen with the amount of people applying for unemployment at one time not everyone is able to submit their claim at the same time so we've seen 
states get overwhelmed with claims and have it carry over to you know a week or two weeks or three weeks so there could potentially be people that got laid off five or six weeks ago that just got their claim submitted last week so they show up in this week's uh initial jobless claims so it's, I, I personally know someone who's been trying to get through to the New Jersey unemployment office since March 20th. So I think the overall number, it could still potentially be understated, but it's also uh, potentially being stretched over a longer week period than it needed to be just because the system got overwhelmed and they couldn't report it all at once. Yeah, so, so, we, so we ultimately get to the to the, we'll, the, the yeah, number will we'll be get the number there. eventually, but but it may not be telling us in real time what's actually happening on a week to week basis. And yeah. we use this as a proxy for people losing their jobs, but it, it may not it may not be updating us that when hey, are so they and so them? lost their job this week and mm-hmm. had their claim filled because like like we've said, they could have lost their job several weeks ago and had and just got their application through this week. And it's going to be a moving number too because even as we get. You know, there's going to be numbers every week, but as more and more states start to reopen, people are going to be able to submit their claims that got laid off a month ago. So their number is going to show up on the initial jobless claims, but there's also going to be people who maybe lost their job and was able to submit a claim like six weeks ago that got rehired maybe or something bu- like that. Maybe yeah. their business got a loan and they, they ended up bringing all the employees back. And, yeah, uh, and, right. and so they went on and then came off and, yeah. and you know, we haven't fully updated the numbers there yet either. Yeah. yeah, I've seen some headlines that say there it's possible there may be as many as 5 million people who have regained their jobs uh, since the end of February, beginning of March, when the shelter-in-place started. I've also read that uh, some people in the market are estimating that 80% of the job losses might be temporary. Now, you may be temporarily furloughed, you know, expecting that you'd be out of work for two or three or four weeks. But now that we're going on a much longer period of time, that business may not come back. And so some of these things that we were originally estimating to be temporary job losses may turn into permanent job losses. That's going to be a problem. But again, we're not going to know. We just have to continue to watch the numbers. So initial jobless claims come out every Thursday morning. And that gives us a a sneak peek state by state of what the numbers are. But then there's also continuing jobless claims, which are also, which come out, they're a week behind. So if you filed your initial jobless claim last week, this week, if you're still out of work, now you are part of the continuing jobless claims. And so right now, uh, the number is that there's uh, 25 million people who are still getting continuing unemployment claims. So the workforce prior to the slowdown was 155 million. So back of the envelope numbers, 25 million on 155 million jobs puts you around a 16% unemployment rate. That's like we were saying before we turned the microphone on, these numbers are going to be squishy. The point for that I'd a like while. to add, the numbers are always squishy. So if you think you're like, discerning news about the economy or, or like especially what that means for stocks moving forward by looking at economic data like it's important to look at it but i think it's important to remember that these are like loose proxies for these things that we want to know about the economy because you get these numbers they're they're always rear looking but not only are they rear looking but a lot of them then get revised 
after the fact because yeah. they're so noisy and they're not perfect ways to measure it we revise them like months later they were talking in the article about how they usually they seasonally adjust the unemployment numbers too right. because and they gave the example usually around thanksgiving and christmas they would seasonally adjust the unemployment numbers because a lot of uh temporary jobs pop up around the holidays for mm. stuff like that so yeah they adjust it uh i I don't know how they're going to adjust it this year, but... It, and um, so, like, they do these things, and we need these measurements, you know, in some form. Like, I'm not saying they're not important at all, but I'm I'm just saying that if you take them too literally, uh, I don't think that they're providing you as much valuable information as you think, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm not sure how much I would bake them into, like, any investment process. You, right. used, to, you used to use the phrase, uh, interesting but not actionable. Yeah, yeah. I... It's, it's yeah, file I, it under that category, I think. That, that file cabinet to... is very big. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. You know, it's just to put this in perspective, today's initial jobless claims number was 2.4 million uh, people who filed last in the past week for their initial jobless claims. A big number in a recession in the past used to be 210,000 people filed for job loss last week, 220, 230,000. Now we're getting 10 times that. The other but it's th- relative too, because compared to what it was like four or five weeks ago, two point, it's like, oh, only 2.4 million people. It sounds like a win. You get, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you get accustomed to these things pretty quick. The, the last thing I'll, I'll just throw in on this, if you're a, a sole proprietor and you don't have employees, so you don't have a payroll report, you basically what's left in the till at the end of the month is your profit. Those people, like a barber, okay, those people are not included in jobless claims. So all of these small employers, like the boss, they're at, they've been out of work too. They're not even in these numbers. The actual number of people who are not working, it's a lot bigger. Okay, that's going to wrap up episode number 308. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will catch up with you when we hit Peoria, Illinois. That's area code 309, our next episode.